prospective Green Party candidate Cornell West is calling out Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders for refusing to back him. Let's watch what he had to say. You've got a progressive slice in the Democratic Party. Now, I was with Brother Bernie, as my dear sister knows, uh, twice. They treated mm-hmm. him badly. They treated him unjustly. They rigged the whole thing. You had Hillary Clinton and the others were going to ensure that he did not win no matter what. Mm-hmm. So at the core of the Democratic Party is a rot. And that rottenness is corporate greed. So when I hear AOC, I say, okay, she's part of that progressive small slice of the Democratic Party, but she's given in to the mm-hmm. perceptions of the corporate wing of that party. And the corporate wing says over and over again, all we have is two parties. Mm. It's freaking frack. Mm-hmm. It's Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And I think we have a little bit more of that interview. Let's play it for you now. I love the brother, and, and, and you know, you, even in love, people have deep disagreements about these things. But I think, again, he's, he's fearful of the neo-fascism of Trump, and he mm. just sees that somehow Biden— See, part of the problem is that uh, people look at Biden, they don't really want to tell the full truth. Uh, if, if, if you say, okay, the Trump doesn't even have a bar, he's below the ground. Because he's just gangster dead up. It's always said he was a gangster, so it's not a surprise. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And he's been obsessed with the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. And it looks like he might get caught, but we don't know. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Most folk, most black folk would have done one hundredth of what he did. Oh, come on. Mm-hmm. And end up in jail. Mm-hmm. I got my mm-hmm. dear brother, Mark Ridley Thomas in L.A., the most powerful black politician who has been convicted for nothing. Nothing under Biden's Justice Department. So that second clip he was talking about Bernie Sanders being unwilling to tell the truth uh, about Joe Biden and what he represents uh, to the interests of uh, average Americans. Now, this was a fascinating interview. It was on The Breakfast Club, which is one of the most listened to um, urban media stations, a huge platform, was very warmly received, which I'm sure rankles a lot of Democrats who are in particular concerned about what will happen with the black vote with someone like Cornell West running in, in the in the um, in the general election. But what, what do you make of this willingness point uh, to go after people or criticize people like AOC and Bernie Sanders uh, pointedly for seemingly abandoning their policy principles and early on endorsing Biden, a candidate about whom AOC once said in any normal country would not even be in the same party? Yeah, it it certainly seems like things have shifted a little bit for, I think, for AOC in particular. Um, I, I My perception is that uh, true actual progressive, actual leftists have grown very frustrated with her, very tired with her for lack of, for, for not fighting the good fight on literally anything and um, and seeming to feel very comfortable and very at home with the moderate faction of the, the Democratic Party, with the mainstream media, with the attention she gets. I don't know if it was because she got, you know, so um, attacked by conservative and right-wing media. There was a time period where, like, every other story on a conservative website was about AOC. You know, some of them fair criticism or criticism that I, too, would have. You probably wouldn't have, but I would have. Some of it, you know, very silly, like, oh, she was in a dance video once or something. Perhaps it made her seek the familiarity and the and the friendship of the major mainstream media apparatus or something like that. I don't know. For whatever reason, she doesn't want to be a scrappy outsider um, fighting for, you know, her leftist views. And um, you can you can 
feel that frustration from Cornell West? Well, it's interesting. Uh, so Dan Marins at HuffPo just actually wrote this um, lengthy uh, deep dive into what's been going on with Justice Democrats, which is the organization that mounted her campaign, recruited progressive candidates to run in the wake of Bernie's 2016 movement. AOC, of course, was the most successful uh, member of that effort. Now, they'd recently just laid off nine of 20 uh, staffers. They've been having trouble fundraising. And there's some questions in this article about what the organization is doing that it might have led to this result. So one point that Marin uh, makes, if I recall, correctly, is that she is one of the best fundraisers in the Democratic Party. She kills it. I don't think that anybody in the House beats her, maybe Nancy Pelosi. Um, but she spent a lot of that money on her own race. Um, one might think that she needed to do that to stay into office, but when the votes were all in, she, in, she won by an incredibly comfortable margin. And, you know, there's some question as to whether or not she really needed to spend all of those millions of dollars of resources on staying in office when this organization that she perhaps would not exist without and which is now flailing desperately needs her fundraising support. She does do co-fundraising with them and tries to help them out in that way. But some progressives look at that and say, you have in the past, she no longer does this, but you have in the past given money to blue dog Democrats through your fundraising for the Democratic Party. Here's Justice Democrats not able to keep your head, their head afloat. What are you even doing here? Are your allegiances more to the Democratic Party than they are to the progressive movement? Moreover, Justice Democrats itself as an organization is getting a lot of flack for saying your unwillingness to be critical of any of these squad members ever or pressure them to be more adversarial to the Democratic Party the way the Freedom Caucus is doing, even when that was the explicit purpose of your organization, something that founders, Justice Democrat co-founders, um, Cenk Uger and um, uh, Kyle Kalinske both say, like, we founded you to be adversaries of the Democratic Party, your failure to do so is exactly why you can't raise money anymore. Because progressives who are giving you their last $7 an hour of their pay, people who are working class, uh, did not want you to get in there and pat Hakeem Jeffries on the back, even though he has spent his entire career, or the most recent years of his career, trying to unseat you guys from office. If you're more cozy with him, as the Freedom Caucus is fighting their establishment wing, if you're throwing your arms around Hakeem Jeffries, why on earth should I give you my last $27 when you, you made it obvious that you're not going to fight for me? And so I think that Cornell West, his presence in this race is really giving that disaffected corner of the left a place to latch onto. And it's also giving, I think, some black voters who might not have identified as leftists or even as a part of the Bernie movement, generally speaking, a place to say, oh, here's someone who is willing to articulate um, a, a reason to vote that's affirmative for the black community instead of patronizingly saying, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black, while ignoring these fundamental promises that Joe Biden made to the black community from the $2,000 checks to the canceling student debt to canceling student debt for HBCU graduates in particular, um, to the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and on down the line. Um, so I think him giving interviews like this, it's a real panic moment for the Democratic Party. Yeah, I, I noticed that it seems like a similar thing is happening to um, the leftist political movement in this country as happened. You know, I've, I've gone through this with my own, the libertarian movement. There was a broad um, sort of idea that even had eventually per pervaded the mainstream media that libertarianism was having a political moment in about in 2000 from like the 2010 to 2014 period, mm -hmm. I would say. Obviously, the Tea Party movement mm -hmm. uh, swept into Congress a lot of um, Republicans who, are, who paid a lot of lip service, at least, to limited government, to the idea of, of, of reducing government um, regulation and taxes and all those kinds of things. Um, Rand Paul was at his, I mean, he's, he's also gotten 
he's very ascendant now, too, because of his fighting with Fauci and all the COVID stuff. Mm. But there was a moment where he, he on, there was polling showing he would be, he being the preferred person of, the, of these Tea Party libertarian views within the Republican Party, that he might be the front runner for the nomination. Um, and there was a New York Times story about how well libertarians were doing. Um, Republicans thought that by going all in on, yeah, limiting government and then kind of giving up some of the culture war stuff, like abortion and gay marriage, that would be, and immigration, because a lot of libertarians, it's kind of split sometimes, with a lot of libertarians, if you're being principled, you want more immigration. You want less restriction, government restriction on labor. Um, then Donald Trump came along and kind of just destroyed that consensus and was very successful, not by doing completely 100% the opposite of libertarianism, because honestly, his foreign policy ideas are very influenced by Ron and Rand Paul mm. and by the libertarian wing. But um, a lot of the rest of it is a, is a mixed bag. And now, and now it's just all about Trump, and it's harder to get like my ideas back into the the discourse on the Republican Party. Yeah, I wonder I, if a similar thing's happening. I, agree. I think that many people predicted, myself included, at great personal risk to myself professionally, that Joe Biden was a danger to the left and to left movements, and that the left should be critical about the idea of falling in line and voting for him in 2020. I very publicly and famously declined to do so. Um, and it was largely because of this reason, because we see, and you hear people make this argument in, Dar in Daniel Marin's piece in HuffPo, that, well, Biden's pretty good at X, Y, and Z. He spent more money on climate than anyone else has, so it doesn't matter if he spent too little to actually prevent a, a climate apocalypse. Well, uh, Trump is bad on these things, so we shouldn't pay attention to the fact that Joe Biden wrote the crime bill. Well, you know, he did uh, half child poverty. We're not going to look too closely at the fact that they designed the policy to sunset so it wouldn't be a long-term thing after the um, pandemic. Well, he tried with student debt, ignoring the fact that by many people's understanding that he had legal authority to simply use executive orders to cancel all the student debt on day one, the same way that Donald Trump used the legal authority to put the moratorium in on the first place, and that it's Joe Biden is going to be the one who's going to lift the moratorium that Joe, that Donald Trump put into effect and saved 44 million student debtors so much money over the last three years. So Biden's plausible deniability, his seeming like an okay guy, has completely neutered the left movement. You don't hear anybody talking yeah. about Medicare for all anymore because Joe Biden said it's completely off the table. I would veto it even if it passed Congress. And how in that kind of a space can you both can you live as an AOC candidate? How can you be a Democrat who walked around next to Bernie Sanders saying there was this moral call? to say that and in the richest country in the world, we cannot have 68,000 people dying just because they were too poor for health care. And then back someone like Joe Biden, who uses the tragic death of his own son in a commercial to justify why he does not support universal health care, point of, point of service free health care for Americans who are not rich enough to get the services that his own son got. And then he won. And then he won. And so the left still trying to, the, those people on the left, like AOC, who are still trying to keep one foot within the Democratic Party, they're ultimately useful idiots to many on the left, serving the purpose of validating a party that fundamentally is antagonistic to the interests of the movements that put them there in the first place. Yeah. Well, that's what Cornell West is running on. Um, gonna, uh, certainly, a, I think a candidate, you would probably agree, um, gets a, a uh, is exciting for the left. Yes, it is really a genuine absolutely. leftist. So we'll have to see um, how well he does and if that does end up siphoning, deservedly perhaps, voters from Joe Biden. Absolutely. 
Well, that does it for us for this week on Rising. Tomorrow, Jessica Burbank and Amber Athey will be back for Rising Fridays. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Very special young lady has a birthday coming up next week, <laughs> I think. Very special lady. I don't know about the young part. <laughs> See you next week. See ya. Welcome to Rising. We have a perfectly adequate show for you today. <laughs> Channeling Ryan Grimm a little bit, who used to say that. Uh, Brianna, I think we dressed so closely today that it looks visually uninteresting on screen. We're on our uh, Bobsy twins path right now. I don't know what's going on. We're too much, we're too much in sync. All right. Well, we're going to try to get through it anyway, delivering you the news as best we can. Take it away. All right. Well, on Wednesday, President Biden was asked directly about his alleged pay for play influence peddling scheme for the first time since former associate Devin Archer's congressional testimony. Let's watch. There's this testimony now where one of your son's former business associates is claiming that you were on speakerphone a lot with them talking business. Is that what? I never talked business in anybody. And I, I know you'd have a lousy question. Well, what do you, it's, why is that a lousy question? Thank you. Because it's not true. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you so much. Ducey getting back in the game. I believe he's been on paternity leave. Nice mm -hmm. to see him back. Yesterday, House Republicans published a memo alleging bank statements show that Hunter Biden received over $20 million in payments from Russian and Kazakhstani oligarchs, as well as Ukrainian Burisma Holdings. Screenshots of redacted bank records purport to show Hunter Biden received these payments while his dad, Joe Biden, was vice president. It should be noted that the memo does not show direct payments were made to Joe Biden, but he did attend dinners with Burisma representatives. Mm. According to a new report from the Washington Examiner, uh, a handful of aides worked with both Hunter Biden's business and Joe Biden's political operation at various times, suggesting that there might have been an even less significant effort to keep those two things separate. President Biden has maintained he had no involvement in his son's business deals, but former employee uh, says otherwise, claiming she set up a White House tour for Hunter's associates. Now, I'm sure Ducey is kicking himself because part of the way, the reason that Biden might have been able to truthfully answer that question the way he did is because he asked Biden whether he, he spoke about business on the phone. And what Devin Archer's testimony was, was just that he was on the phone when business was being discussed. So that he gave Biden a little bit of room to wiggle out of that. But many people believe that him being willing to show up to those kind of business phone calls was serving the purpose in and of itself of this kind of influence. Right, because scheme. what is the business? The business is Joe Biden being having proximity to Hunter Biden and all of these these Burisma and other these oligarchs, these right. people. So, it, it, you know, the mere fact that he's participating in these calls, he's meeting these people without having, you know, set up like obviously, I mean, if he accidentally walks in the same rule, sure. uh, same room as a business person is, doesn't necessarily make it a some kind of entanglement, but but you would need to set up these ironclad kind of protections, say, nope, 
no business. I have nothing to do with it. My son's on his own. I love him, but he's on his own. I can give you nothing. You could make those disclosures, and right. that would go a long way. But it doesn't seem like any of that kind of thing took place. And again, this is at the time where he's vice president, and he is making policy. He brags on tape about making policy having to do with Ukraine, having to do with Burisma. Yeah. Also, once, twice, you can believe that in the course of one's life, you might bump right. into your child while they're doing business. But Devin Archer testified that he personally knew, he was personally present for it happening mm. at least 20 times, and he was not in the room every time Hunter Biden obviously made a business right. transaction. One time Hunter Biden called, let's say there was one time Hunter Biden calls him with the business associates in the room and does this little d demonstration of influence peddling, and Joe Biden's polite about it, and then the next day texts Hunter and says, Never effing do that to me again. That's what you should do. Yes. But it went on and on and on. Yes. Over and over again. What do you make about this new, these new allegations about uh, records that show, these bank statements that show yeah. the Hunter Biden received $20 million That's a lot of money. payments from these uh, questionable figures, oligarchs and the like? This is not chump change. This is a lot of money. Um, clearly, those people thought they were getting something out of this relationship. Yeah. They, thought it was they thought it was worth $20 million. That's a lot of money. Yeah, from a political perspective, do you think this is serving, I think the intended purpose from the perspective of the Republicans is Trump is being uh, indicted many times over. Uh, there are going to be some persuadable voters who might be uncomfortable with the idea that their candidate, one of the candidates, is under investigation in criminal matters. Does this even the playing field sufficiently, even though there has yet to emerge a smoking gun that connects us all to the president himself? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I want to be fair to the Joe Biden. I don't think it's... We, we, there's not evidence demonstrating a kind of equivalent behavior to some of the things um, Trump is accused of, although I have my own separate... I have a lot of reservations about uh, many of the indictments against Donald Trump, both strategically, tactically, even on the law itself, the, you know, the effect they'll have on political expression. Um, but I, I know why Republicans are pursuing this. And the mainstream media should be totally embarrassed, totally embarrassed for the way they've treated these accusations um, up until now as just totally a nothing burger, nothing to even look into. Um, I, I think a lot of Americans feel gaslit with respect to Hunter Biden. From the very beginning, they were told, they were told what you're, the, the, the information we're getting about him, which comes from this laptop, was planted by Russians to, to, to confuse and deceive yeah. you. And Joe Biden ran on that. He ran on it. He ran with that. He used that as an explanation to excuse all of this, to make people not pay attention to it. Look away. Don't look at it. If you're yeah. looking at it. You're falling for what the Russians want you to believe. Yeah. And we've come so far since then, so far since then. And I think it's it's it should be humiliating for um, people who who said don't look, who who you know believed exactly what the intelligence officials and even worse, the mainstream media um, wanted you to believe about it. Well, other GOPers are getting in on this uh, issue on News Nation Wednesday. GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy sought to tie the U.S.'s involvement in the Ukraine war and Donald Trump's impeachment with the alleged Hunter Biden bribery scheme. Let's listen. Hunter Biden has been a geopolitical disaster already. But he has already, those behaviors have resulted in the impeachment of a former U.S. president. But now it is the same country to whom, yeah. and by the way, here's what we do know, wait, $5 million wait. to one side or not. 
Hunter Biden had no expertise to no sit doubt on the board of an that. energy company. No doubt about what it. What the heck is he doing? No doubt about sitting it. Sitting on the board of Burisma. He was selling his so name. So that alone warrants an investigation. Using There's no his doubt name. about it. Look, right? I have no problem with the investigation. Selling his name, using his name, using the Biden name, totally unqualified. Agree with you on all of that. To a country no that's getting $200 right. billion but, but again, of but, our money but, but then you right mentioned, now. You that's mentioned why it's the, relevant. You mentioned the impeachment as if it's somehow related to Hunter Biden. I mean, Donald Trump was asking it the Ukrainians to, to open an investigation that they didn't have into his political opponent. I mean, that is, regardless when, of whether it's impeachable, it's not a good thing to do, no? At a time... At a time when Hunter Biden is sitting on the board of yeah, a but, company whose but, owner is part of Ukraine's National Security that. Council. So my question is, why is it – here's my question. If yes. we're sending $200, $300 billion of taxpayer money yes. to another country and there are credible allegations that there are financial relationships between a state-affiliated company and the son of the U.S. president, yep. whether it's $5 million or a board seat, yep. at least the board seat is well known, yep. we should be getting to the bottom of that. Yep. I mean, that's, that is an interesting question. I think that there's definitely, as we discussed at length already, something to this being so suspicious on its face that it merits an investigation. But do you think there's something separate and apart from the question of whether or not it should be investigated, the question of whether or not a president in the course of a race should try to, you know, provoke, weaponize the Justice Department, as that term has become so common, mm -hmm. weaponize the Justice Department because it might provide them a political advantage in that context, is there something fundamentally problematic about that that merits impeachment or, or at least some kind of public censorship? Sure. You know, I think if we go back to the first impeachment, there were two of them. If we go back to the first one, uh, you know, some people uh, framed what Trump had, had done as wrong because he was trying to exert influence on this uh, on the Ukrainians, I was like, I, I don't think that was what was wrong. I mean, all of diplomacy is trying to exert sure. influence. We're, the, America is trying to exert, engage in diplomacy to to have countries adopt policies that are that we think are more favorable to America. Or, or, or pick we, presidents, right, prime ministers, we, as we'll talk about later right, today. We use the language of more favorable to democracy and democratic interests. What we mean is more favorable to us. Right. But that that's, all countries do that. Sure. That is what diplomacy is. What was wrong about what Trump did is that what he was trying to, the influence he was trying to arrive at was not necessarily in America's interest. It was just in his narrow electoral interests. Right. And it seemed, now, now I, I think one can have a, um, can question that impeachment, whether that conduct being inappropriate, whether it rose to the level of he should be impeached. Sure. Um, certainly in comparison to what happened subsequently that he was impeached for, it seems much less significant. Um, but look, it is relevant because, you know, he wanted this in investigation into into Biden's and their connection to to the to the judge, the the demand that Vice President Joe Biden had made to have this judge taken care of, who would this and this mattered for Burisma, who was unfavorable to Burisma. So you can't so his his fingerprints are all over this. He was proud of it. He bragged about it. So Honestly, this may, starts to make Trump. Trump still shouldn't have asked for it in a like. It, it was clear I want this because he's my political opponent. Right. But you know, if he'd asked it in a in a in a, if he'd known what we know now about the connections between Hunter Biden and Burisma and and the policy position Biden was in, maybe there's a world in which that is not an illegitimate ask. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. So 
it's a sticky uh, situation when you have so many seemingly compromised candidates. The public is going right. to have to make a really tough decision. It's a sticky situation forward. when you have the policymaker's son <laughs> being paid millions of dollars for uh, for a very relevant policy. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Please do stick around. news broke yesterday about California Senator Dianne Feinstein's short hospitalization following a fall. Democrats in Washington continued to duck questions about the 90-year-old Democrat's future in the Senate. Journalist Glenn Greenwald put the party leadership on blast, tweeting, quote, the only reason Feinstein, 90, is still in the Senate despite barely knowing where she is and her daughter having power of attorney over her life is Pelosi fears Newsom will name Barbara Lee to replace her, making it harder for Adam Schiff to beat Lee. Democratic strategist Chris Jackson broke down the political calculation going on within the party, tweeting, quote, yes, if she resigned, Newsom could appoint a successor, but Republican support would be needed to add her replacement to the Judiciary Committee, and I can guarantee that wouldn't happen. I'm sure she is staying in office for this very reason. She knows without her, the progress of judges comes to a halt. Yeah, that does seem fair. That is true, it, as far as we can tell. Now, why there isn't more uh, critique falling on Chuck Schumer for allowing her to keep her crucial committee assignments yes. as long as he did? That's the real question. And for there running have been, for re-election the last time she did any, she was. She was I mean, that's true. But even if you can't even force then. her out, <laughs> even if you can't force her from running again, strip her of her committee positions right. for the be the better betterment of the party. There has been so much bad leadership. I got to say, coming out of New York in particular. Remember, New York State was the weak link with respect to midterms last year. Yes. Um, could have had a much stronger showing, but because of a fail, this whole um, controversy around redrawing the district lines, not anticipating that you know you're going to basically shrink the number of, of credible good candidates that were all like fighting against each other in all of these New York districts, um, it was a terrible news for a lot of progressives in the in the state. You know, and yet the leadership of the Democratic Party in New York seems to suffer no consequences. Let a, let a progressive have a little bit of a misstep, and we, bl we see it blared all over the news that that's why the right. party is failing. But these blue dogs are literally potentially jeopardizing the entire um, uh, judicial slate going forward. And there's crickets. Chuck Schumer's name isn't even in this conversation. Yeah. Um, New York is running the whole Democratic uh, Party in Congress these days. Yeah, right into the ground. Um, now, help me understand the shifting alliances between the Pelosi's, Newsom's, and all these other people. So Pelosi wants to clear the way for Adam Schiff, but Gavin Newsom has pledged to appoint a black woman. So that is the that's the genesis of the conflict. Even though these people yes. were all formerly allied and friendly, and they so. Way earlier, uh, before there was an actual race afoot uh, for Dianne Feinstein's seat, Gavin Newsom, now in retrospect prematurely, said that he would want a black woman to be in that spot. Now, Barbara Lee is obviously the person that people call to mind. She is someone who has had really brave um, and, I think, admirable votes uh, and, and an admirable record to run on, including being the sole yes. person who didn't vote to authorize military force. Uh, and there, I mean, outside of her being black, I think that's almost reductive when she is one of the few 
truly credible anti-war voices in Congress who really put her money where her mouth was when it was very difficult to do so after 9-11. However, uh, because of the entanglement between these families, so there have basically been these four great California liberal families, the Browns, the Pelosi's, the Newsom's, and the Gettys. And their entanglements have gone back literally generations. I think we have a graphic where someone attempts to untangle the relationships between the, the And we the were four. looking at this graphic to prepare for the segment, and um, I gave up. And it's so we Byzantine. Just put it on screen. Right, so, so you can see that Governor Pat Brown in the top left um, and, uh, and then you have Nancy Pelosi's father, John, in the middle, and Newsom's grandfather, and then J. Paul Getty on the right. And you can see that there's a business relationship between Nancy Pelosi's grandfather, uh, father rather, and Newsom's grandfather. Mm -hmm. You can see that Newsom's grandfather adopted one of the Getty's children, and the Gettys formally have adopted uh, Gavin. And so the, re the, the import of all of this is that it is difficult for people like Gavin and Nancy Pelosi, even though they're on opposite sides of a political agenda here and who gets to replace Dianne Feinstein, it's difficult for them to come out Newsom's swinging at each other. Informally in adopt Gordon Getty. It's yeah. weird. <laughs> It is weird. Yeah. It is weird. These kinds of entanglements, these personal, professional, business, and political entanglements are part of why you're not seeing the all-out blows or snipes that you might expect if there was a kind of an open race for this seat. And I think that there's a compounded on top of all of this Gavin Newsom's frustration that I think that he feels like it is his turn. He seems to be waiting in the wings for something to potentially happen. Uh, if something rather does happen to Joe Biden, he's not able to be the nominee. He seems to be positioning himself for all of that. And I think probably doesn't want to pick a big fight with powerful leaders in the Democratic Party, like someone like Nancy Pelosi. Obviously, she's not still a Speaker of the House, but still, but still carries a lot of influence. Very influential, running a shadow uh, speaker um, right. or, or minority leader of the House at this right. point. Yeah, uh, we'll have to see. It's hard to uh, to tell, but it looks like an epic showdown is being set up for this seat whenever um, Dianne Feinstein does indeed retire. Obviously, she's right. not going to be running for um, re-election. She said that, that she is done after this term. Yeah, blessedly. Um, now, the gerontocracy, yes. of course, doesn't stop with Dianne Feinstein. We all remember just recently um, the episode that Mitch, Mitch McConnell had. I think we have a clip of that as well. After finishing the NDA, uh, this week has been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of Else you want to say? I'm sure it's go back to your office. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say anything else to the press? Go ahead, John. Let's go back to you. Go ahead, John. So McConnell will still be in office until 2026. That's when he would be up for re-election. Um, there was a challenge to his leadership um, after the last election, and you know, closed behind closed doors. Some, uh, I can't remember, it was a handful of Republicans did vote against confirming him yeah. as the minority leader. Um, obviously, he is not, Mitch McConnell is not beloved by the MAGA base at all. He's not particularly well-liked by 
Donald Trump at all. So Donald Trump continuing to be on the scene and becoming the nominee um, will mean there's going to continue to be acrimony between these two camps. Um, if you know, there more, there are some of the kind of Trumpier. I'm not saying that as a negative. More sure. closely aligned with Trump, more into his version of populism. Your Josh Hawley's, your J.D. Vance's, those kinds of people. Um, I think Blake Masters was widely perceived as going. He would be joining that faction, but he did not win election. So the you know the anti-McConnell faction has picked up some steam over time, but but McConnell has he commands the purse strings, he the the donations right, flow through gonna... him, so he has so much financial power to back his people. Um, they will they will again. They, He's the person who makes you go away. No one is going to make him go away until he's ready to go. Right. So if he were to become incapacitated, however, just like uh, Diane Feinstein, if we were in the position where we're asking whether these people are kind of fit and competent to lead, you know, he's in a similar situation as Feinstein. As you pointed out, holding the purse strings, being on the Appropriations Committee, on the Rules Committee, Republicans are going to have to figure out what to do about that. Is there a world where we could have like an even Steven tit for tat trade where everyone puts down their weapons and allows each and allows party. the old people to be retired, right? Or is the is the the friction that you just pointed out between the Freedom Caucus and the rest of the Republican Caucus going to put a wrinkle in that machination, a, a monkey yeah. wrench in that machination? The Democrats, this is something I've complained about a great deal uh, as a leftist, but the left leaning Democrats, the squad members and the like, showed complete and total solidarity with the establishment wing of their party during yeah. the Freedom Caucus uh, force the vote moment earlier this year. Democrats fall in line, right? You saw you saw what Republicans were willing to do to Kevin McCarthy. And they won a great deal of power from it, but does that frustrate Republican establishment leadership as they try to figure out what to do with the potentially incapacitated? Not that yeah. we are there yet uh, with Mitch McConnell, but... And I'll, I mean, not to psychoanalyze him, but McConnell was probably thinking, along with a lot of other establishment figures in the Republican Party and some even a lot of people in conservative media, that maybe we were almost done with Trump. He wasn't going to be the nominee again. There were promising alternatives. Now you're, you know, you're gearing up for if you want to, it was reasonable that he might outlast him. Sure. Now, I don't, when is Trump ever going away? I don't yeah. know. If, if I'm waiting for Trump to just be done and then I can really have command of my of my factions again and then you know retire in a happy place, I, I don't think that's that's gonna. He's got to he's got to stay um, in charge, the minority leader or the majority leader, depending on the composition of the Senate, for a long time if he wants to outlive um, Donald Trump's political career. Indeed, indeed, <laughs> especially since, per uh, Donald Trump's uh, representations of his doctor, he's one of the healthiest presidents to have ever done it. He'll run again in 2028, <laughs> maybe, maybe from prison, but he'll be running. <laughs> All right, we're rising for you right after this.
FBI agents shot and killed a Utah man accused of making threats against President Biden's life just hours before the commander-in-chief touched down in Salt Lake City on Wednesday. The FBI said in a statement that special agents were trying to serve a warrant on the home of Craig DeLilu Robertson in Provo, just south of Salt Lake City, when the incident happened. According to two anonymous law enforcement sources who spoke to the Associated Press, Robertson was armed at the time he was shot. Robertson posted this past Monday that he had heard Biden was coming to Utah and he was planning to dig out a camouflage suit and begin, quote, cleaning the dust off the M24 sniper rifle. The post follows months of graphic online commentary against several public figures, according to court documents. Neighbors described Robertson as a frail elderly man who walked with the aid of a hand-carved stick and that he didn't seem to be a threat despite being a gun owner. So the the shooting came as people were trying to serve serve him uh, serve a warrant uh, on right. him. Uh, unclear what kind of altercation resulted in yeah. his death. Because um, it doesn't sound like, frankly, it seems extremely unlikely to me he was actually planning any violence whatsoever. This sounds like a way too over the edge. Um, aggressive speech. I understand why the FBI looked into it. Of course they're going to look into stuff like this. Um, they should. Um, sometimes they miss stuff that they should not have missed, even when there were obvious signs. So I don't begrudge them at all taking, the, taking this seriously, even at, you know when there's like, you know, where the schools get closed down, when somebody calls in a bomb threat, even though it's extremely unlikely that anyone's usually just someone who wants sure. a day off. But they police still got to look into it. That's how it's supposed to be. That's fine. Nobody objects to that, so I understand them looking into this. Um, it, it is unfortunate, obviously, that a life was lost. Um, we should, you know, we have to wait to learn more about this. I don't know if, because it's FBI, is there going to be surveillance camera or, you know, body cam type stuff? I don't know that FBI has to do that. You know, so so. This is not the first time that the FBI went to investigate. This is from a report uh and the AP, according to court documents, two FBI agents came to Robertson's house after the initial warning about him from Truth Social in March. They found Robertson wearing a Trump cap and what one described in a search warrant affidavit as a an AR-15 style rifle lapel pin. According to the affidavit, he told them his initial threat was just, quote, a dream and demanded they only return with a warrant. Um, and in a Facebook post days later, cited in the affidavit, he said, to my friends in the Federal Bureau of Idiots, I know you're reading this and you have no idea how close your agents came to violent eradication. He had a Facebook post that said, hey, Merrick Garland, you demented weasel, send your FBI SWAT team to my house. You won't because I fight back against cowards. Yeah, I mean, this does raise the question again as to whether or not certain comments by various um, Republican politicians, um, whether it's Donald Trump, there was some criticism of Marjorie Taylor Greene at an event she had earlier this week. Someone from the audience shouted out something about, I don't want to mischaracterize the statement, but like, we got to end Democrats or something seemingly violent against Democrats. And Marjorie Taylor Greene seemed to like, corroborate it from the stage, not directly, but, you know, people were asking in that context as well whether or not these kind of moments are emboldening the public to do violent acts. Obviously, Trump in 1-6 is the biggest example, whether or not you think he's criminally liable for the statements that he made and encouraging the crowd to go over there. Many people who were prosecuted for their behavior on January 6th 
said that they thought that it was going to be okay because Donald Trump told them it was going to be okay and that the election really was stolen and that they were doing something legal and just and that he's he was misleading them. So, I mean, do you think that this is increasingly a problem for Republicans or are they at some point going to have to reckon with the idea, not necessarily criminal liability for this kind of speech, but their own followers are being seduced into potentially dangerous and life-ending situations like this because they're made to believe that this kind of behavior is going to be good for the republic or good for them or help advance their political interests or whatever. I mean, look, I think it would just be good for everyone to cool their rhetoric a little bit, like for their good of their own mental well-being. Sure. Um, I'm not particularly worried about escalate. I mean, I'm worried about violence. We have a, we have D.C., has, is having its worst year of the murder rate here is crazy. We're going to have the worst year in a long time. Yeah. The murder rate is already higher than it was in 2018, which was the most previous bad year. Um, none of those murders are have anything to do with political motivation toward violence, right? It's 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 generic crime. Yeah. So again, that is the most we focus on stuff like this because it's politically salient. And so, you know, when when there's a when there's a right wing crazy person threatening violence or doing violence, it gets a lot of mainstream attention. When there's a left wing person who does that, who actually did shoot people in the that congressional baseball game from several years mm -hmm. ago, that got a lot of right wing attention. But most of the violence out there has nothing to do with but, politics, but, but Robbie, and if, that's what people are worried about. If there was someone out there saying, "Hey, if you're in my gang, go to this address and shoot a bunch of people up," that would get attention too. The, the question is whether or not people with public platforms are inciting, even if not legally inciting, constructively urging people to take increasingly hostile, dangerous, and illegal actions with Well, I mean, January 6th is the big example, the and those people are all have been ritualistically <laughs> found, arrested, and prosecuted for Ritualistically? The, I mean— appropriately. I don't object to any of the charges for trespassing. Um, again, I don't object to them going to visit this person. And obviously, we don't know exactly how the altercation went down. I, you have some skepticism of the police and a lot of uh, examples of how they handle things. I do as well. So we don't know if they handled reason, this correctly or not, but they might that, have handled it correctly. Precisely because of that reason and precisely because the police do wrongly kill people all the time and might have wrongly escalated with this Robinson person, who knows? I would not want people who support my political agenda to be putting themselves in harm's way and to, in especially in a disorganized fashion, be provoking law enforcement in a way that could get them killed. So I'm really, I'm, I'm approaching this from the perspective of presuming Republicans care about their base, Republican leadership mm -hmm. cares about their base. Are they advantaging the well-being of these individuals? And also, secondarily, are they advantaging their own political project for potentially saying things that might, whether or not you think it's directly their fault, embolden folks into taking actions which could get them killed um, without any upside, and also which are going to be used by liberals to gesture to the inappropriateness of them even being in office, of the leadership of being in office? I mean, no. <laughs> what, what do you want? Of course not. That's, I mean, but, it's, but, there is no point to, um, it, it, to the extent uh, political, Republican political officials or otherwise are, you know, tricking their followers or, or like edging or their followers, pushing them over the edge or something into saying crazy stuff that gets them in trouble or actually doing illegal things. That is obviously 
bad and they should not do that. Um, you know, I think I think I think a conservative or a right wing person would respond to you by saying, well, what about, you know, all the uh, inducements among uh, progressive activist type people to respond to police violence by, you know, going crazy in the streets? Is that not a similar uh, are, are they not in a similar way being hyperbolic and and even if they're not directly telling them to go burn things down, but well, being so angry about it, that it exactly caused that. that most liberals are vehemently against to defund the police. The Democratic establishment was for it for about a 24-hour news cycle before they started to turn on all of those activists. D Joe Biden, in the middle of the 2020 uprising, was saying, fund the police harder, and has done exactly that. Well, it yeah, Donald Trump said, march so, to the Capitol, but it has to be peaceful, and et cetera, and so on. I mean, you can... Uh, there's some overheated rhetoric. I mean, there, there's... Right now... Donald Trump is potentially going to get in legal trouble for making statements that are being characterized as attacking, uh, as, as um, mm -hmm. uh, interfering with his trial, uh, obstructing, obstructing justice. So saying things like, if you come after me, I'm going to come after you, um, targeting the people who are trying his case, things like that. This is how it's being characterized. I understand that some people are going to think that that's a vague statement that is not actually provoking people. Um, but I do think if, if someone says, you know, go kill cops— and then someone goes and kills a cop, it's of, of course worth having a conversation about someone's responsibility for provoking that kind of behavior, especially if the person who killed the cop is wearing the hat of the guy that says, go kill cops, just like this person when it was first met, um, first approached by the FBI, or I think when the second time approached by the FBI, was wearing a Trump hat and very publicly on his Facebook was talking about having a solidarity with the Trump in that movement. What about people giving the impression that cops are so racist and violent and unreasonable and dangerous that if you're a minority, you should flee from—you should never call them for help, and you should flee from them in all circumstances, which is bad advice, because then they chase you, and then there are a lot of the—we've covered a lot of incidences where someone flees well, the scene or drives off. I think, actually, the advice that all black people get from the time that we're very small children is that you should absolutely obey the cops— and adhere to every word that they say and never be suspicious in the least because they will shoot you dead. So I don't know that that is actually reflective of the kind of narratives that are out there about the cops. Yes, we're told that we should be very suspicious and scared of cops, but then as a consequence to comply, not to run and be afraid. If people run and are afraid, it's because there's a flight and flight response of millions of years, uh, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution that has brought us to this place. Um, but I don't know, I, I, I do feel as though there is just absolutely no reckoning with anything that's happening here, even when it's resulting in your own people being killed. That's that's the part that kills me. Like, if what a do bunch you mean of no black reckoning, they're I mean they're they're trying to put the man at chiefly in charge of this phenomenon in prison for it. A among the Republican Party, oh. there's no reckoning with whether or not when when that leftist shot the baseball field, Bernie Sanders came out immediately and was like, "That's horrible. Absolutely, don't use violence. That is not. I don't condone that. If you think you're affiliated with me and you do that, absolutely not." And you cannot say that that's the same kind of approach that you're getting from certain members. You know, is, is Donald Trump going to come out and disavow people who who write things like this? Is this is why the, the FBI went to this man's house in the first place? He wrote. Quote, the time is right for a presidential assassination or two. First Joe, then Kamala. You know, it seems like the easiest thing in the world to say, please don't assassinate my political opponents. Are we going to get a statement like that? Does that kind of a statement feel too much like an admission 
uh, from Republicans so they, they feel coerced into it and aren't going to do it. I don't know. But it does, it does feel scary, not just from the perspective of like liberals in it politically, but if you were invested in the interest of people like Robinson, an old frail man who is now dead, I, I would not want my followers to end up in that situation. Mm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Please stay tuned. Musk chickening out of his proposed cage match with Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. The Tesla CEO was asked on Twitter this week when this match will actually be happening. He replied, exact date is still in flux. I'm getting an MRI of my neck and upper back tomorrow. May require surgery before the fight can happen. We'll know this week. Later, when a user proposed a, quote, cage match debate instead of an actual cage match, Musk replied, that sounds like a good idea, too. This is really fighting as, I believe, a noble sport. We also hope with humility to express our admiration for those who have fought before for noble causes. Um, <laughs> a debate sounds like a more constructive fight than a physical fight if he's going to have back surgery. Sure. Maybe but, that's not a good thing you should be doing, Elon. But the question is whether or not this is Maybe concentrate on making. building rockets or colonizing Mars or something. Or making uh, Twitter profitable. Continuing this few, oh, Well, don't even waste your time on that, <laughs> please. Well, of course, we covered the story before, uh, and there was a kind of a reneging on the uh, promise to fight that happened before. Many people in our comment section said, no, 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 they're back on. You were so wrong to cover that as them trying to get out of this fight. Uh, I'm happy to eat my I hat. Want, who wants to fight Mark Zuckerberg? I don't want to fight Mark Zuckerberg. He trains. He does jujitsu. He doesn't feel pain. He's a robot. Yeah, well... It Be afraid, seems, Elon. Be like, more afraid than you are. Elon, I mean, there was this effort to like blame it on uh, Elon's mother, who said that she didn't want him to fight no, before. Mama knows best. I, I think that she might. Um, I don't think that anyone who has either of their best interests at heart really is wanting them to go uh, mano a mano in the ring. Um, but that's just the top line of our uh, Elon Musk slash Twitter news today. Yes. On a more serious note, uh, Linda Yaccarina, who was the person you'll recall that Elon Musk picked to actually run Twitter, now called X, be the CEO, uh, was interviewed on CNBC about her thoughts on the rebranding and the platform in general. Let's watch. It's all in one seamless interface. So think about what's happened since the acquisition, right? Mm. Experiences and evolution into long form video and articles. Subscribe to your favorite creators who are now earning a real living on the platform, which is so exciting. You look at video and you look at soon you'll be able to make video chat calls without having to give your phone number to anyone on the platform. And then payments. Payments, there's been a lot of talk about that. Payments between you and a friend, between you and one of your creators. Yeah. Uh, so there's been a lot going on, and the rebrand represented really a liberation from Twitter, a liberation that allowed us to evolve past a legacy mindset and a thinking, and to reimagine how everyone, everyone on Spaces who's listening, everybody who's watching around the world, it's gonna change how we congregate, how we 
entertain, how we transact all in one platform. But Lynn, I, I, I found that a little empty, um, mm -hmm. rhetorically. Uh, in fact, was slightly reminded of Kamala Harris. Uh, well, what is she actually saying? Corp a lot of corporate speak. Yeah. I mean, I do want to pick up on these claims about this novel ability to make money on Twitter. I think that that was one of the more exciting things about it uh, for people who do spend a lot of time in the app, like ourselves, and like many of these apps feel like they are creating content for free for billionaire owners without having any ability to monetize it. YouTube is unique insofar as you can actually earn money for your clicks and views. Most of these other apps don't offer those same kinds of opportunities outside of getting um, you know, deals with brands to promote them on their page outside of the app. So this was an exciting prospect. They just rolled out the first few payments uh, recently, and there were some big winners. The Krasenstein brothers. The Krasenstein brothers, brothers who did are real well. Big, big liberal political advocates on Twitter seem yeah. to be benefiting from this the and most. they do have massive engagement to be they fair they earned uh ed krasenstein earned fifteen thousand dollars three hundred uh fifteen thousand three hundred dollars rather his brother earned twelve thousand six hundred thirty two dollars to qualify you just need to have twitter blue uh you have to have at least 15 million organic impressions impressions are not the same thing as clicks or right. anything like substantive. So it, it seems like a big number, it's but not. <laughs> it's, it's something that many, many people, if you have a, a hundred thousand plus uh, followers can, can get, and you have to have at least uh, 500 followers. But this has been raising some interesting questions because some people seem to believe that despite um, having all of those qualities in droves and well exceeding 15 million are not getting the same kinds of payout, these kind of $10,000 plus a month payouts that the Krasensteins got. Jackson Hinkle was complaining on Twitter recently that he had 225 million impressions last month and only received $1,693 in ad revenue. Oh, so, you know, are, are we going to get more transparency? Is this actually something that's being, you know, managed that in a way that is connected to people's actual engagement on the app? Is this what some people have alleged, like Jackson Hinkle, that there's some kind of favoritism scheme happening here? And as the Krasenstein's themselves uh, brought up, is this going to lead content creators, people on Twitter, to intentionally generate engagement by saying volatile, controversial, potentially offensive things because they can now profit from engagement, whether it's positive or negative? I mean, there were people were saying provocative things before anyway because they like the engagement. So I don't know that that's going to change things very much. It's not like it was a, a calm site before. Um, it's what it's just it's just speech. It's fine if people do that. I think it's great that Elon has made this an option to you know monetize your tweets. Obviously, we're on a platform YouTube that allows for monetization. That's how our show is able to work. So I think it's a it's a good if. if if they want to have X be the everything app, then that's you know that's in, totally in line with that vision. Obviously, I agree that it should be transparent. And if he, if, if he says it's just literally based on however many impressions you have or whatever it is, then it should be payments based on that rather than but some Robbie, other criteria. You, but. you know that that hasn't been the case with YouTube, that we've talked at length about the ways that certain content creators are throttled unfairly. This show was throttled unfairly on YouTube. We've talked about the way you know people in their Twitter videos will avoid saying certain words um, that they think will get them censored. S-E-X, D-R-U-G-S, mm -hmm. like certain words, certain 
topics that you can talk about in a way that's informative, medical, important, of social value gets minimized in the feeds and people have to work around those sorts of things. The way that people who talked about COVID felt like they were censored right. on some of these apps. And that could very easily be an issue if there's not transparency. And these are different kinds of, sometimes they do that because advertisers don't like it. Sure. And that's the main way the sites make and money. sometimes they do that because sometimes the Biden administration the Biden reaches out and asks them. Well, and speaking of, you want a story that's real censorship. So Elon Musk, this is also something we wanted to discuss here. So Twitter was subpoenaed by the Justice Department for Trump tweet info, um, and they refused to comply and got a $350,000 fine. But I'm reading more closely, and part of the—so uh, what the Justice Department sought was—I guess we don't know exactly, because obviously the tweets are public, but there could be information that Twitter has about under what circumstances they were sent, maybe like what— location they were sent from, um, some other maybe statistics about their reach, those kinds of things. Um, but they also, uh, in, in this, the search warrant, um, uh, where is it, it, um, it was, um, th th there was going to be a non-disclosure force on them. So Twitter was also going, X, Elon Musk, was going to be prohibited from saying that the just Justice Department, from publicly saying that the Justice Department had pursued this information. And Twitter said, we will, we will, we are willing to produce the information, but we do not, we, we, this violates our First Amendment rights for, to say we can't, we can't say that we're doing this. I thought they didn't, did they actually produce the information? I thought that they had So they not. said they will not produce the information as long as that stipulation, they said if they, you took away that stipulation, we will produce the information. Well, they've already violated that stipulation by talking about the government requesting the documents. Am I, or am I misunderstanding no, no, what the no. stipulation was? So, they, so was? This, this has come, this is now public because they've been fined for not complying with it. But this was, the, this was, back, this was months ago when this demand was made. So they exceeded the deadline for this, for, to hand over the information, because the Justice Department didn't agree to drop that stipulation. So it's kind of interesting. It is interesting. I mean, I, whatever you think of the nature of the case, it does seem like, obviously, in criminal cases, Cell phone records are frequently subpoenaed. Uh, email records, all of these other kinds of things are frequently subpoenaed um, if there's cause, you know. Uh, and so it doesn't seem like there was a objection to the relevance of the information in the subpoena itself. It does seem like the objection here was right. to not disclosing it. Um, and, you know, a $350,000 fine to the richest man in the world is absolutely nothing. And it'll be interesting to see what the Justice Department does here as it pursues what apparently a court has decided is relevant and discoverable so I'm, I'm and reading from Fortune information. Magazine. It's, the, it's unclear what information exactly they want right. to get, but possibilities include data about when and where the posts were written, their engagement, and the identities of other accounts that reposted Trump's content. Obviously, this is almost similar to the story we talked about, um, you know, court uh, order for a warrant to search the Facebook user's account who had had that um, illegal abortion and had disposed of the the remains in really graphic ways, and a criminal uh, proceeding was being sought, and Facebook was subpoenaed for D for searches she might have done on Facebook or DMs or something. Well, no, of that it, was, it was the content of her DMs, right? And so the Facebook is moving to doing um, uh, basically the like direct messaging, such that it never is in possession of the content of DMs, so it's not being put in the right. position of having to disclose that information. That's how you get around it, but you would still have to give over whatever location data or whatever 
was available that you can't you can't kind of like technology your way around. So it is an interesting dynamic. Um, and a value neutral, it is an interesting dynamic where if you are accused of a, a robbery or some kind of normal petty crime, they are going to use your cell phone data to yeah. connect you to a crime. Cell phone data, which is known to be notoriously misleading given how many cell phone towers there are and how dense um, urban centers are. Okay, I was in the vicinity, the whole of New York to Westchester is only 13 miles. So those kinds of things often are criticized by defense attorneys for how they're over, overly read into in, in trials. But if you're a poor, petty criminal, no one's paying $350,000 to resist, for AT&T to resist giving over your cell phone records. But as seems to be the case frequently in our American justice system, uh, the rich and the powerful can protect each other, selves and each other and their institutions uh, to prevent disclosure of documents um, that could potentially be incriminating. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. I suppose it will. More rising right after this. Joe Rogan will not be moving to the Great White North anytime soon. The podcaster said on a recent episode that Canada, the country, is, quote, effing falling apart in the wake of strict COVID lockdowns. Let's watch. Would you ever consider living in another country? I would have said Canada up until recently. Now Canada's falling apart. All the that they did during COVID was just the total wrong direction. This the trucker convoy when they froze people's you can't bank make assets. Your horns illegal, bro. They froze people's bank accounts that donated money to the convoy. That's crazy. That's crazy. And what's a, so A peaceful protest, which everybody's supposed to be all about, right? These people that were protesting COVID vaccine mandates and right. the lockdowns, and they they went after the people that donated which is crazy yeah yeah and you can track all that yeah they, well they track everything they shut their bank accounts down, that's man. crazy man i mean that's true it all happened everything you said happened. but also jp morgan in america debanked kanye west for anti-semitism but like mm -hmm. being racist and anti-semitic isn't against the law i'm sorry is not the whole point of america I mean, we're living in the country with the highest incarceration rate per capita in the world. And we sit around and we say, well, China, all these other places are authoritarian, but that isn't a, a restriction on people's civil liberties. What is it? Mass incarceration. We live in a country, I mean, Joe Rogan's someone who, you know, praised someone like Bernie Sanders and suggested that he would vote for him in 2020 because he supported policies like Medicare for all. America is one of the few countries in the entire world where there's even such thing as medical bankruptcy. Canada has universal health care for their citizens. Like, that isn't crazy. So I don't disagree with the critique, but it just seems very myopic to be saying that that one specific issue is why you wouldn't live anywhere else in the world, including Canada. When America, despite being the richest country in the world, certainly has its fair share of uh, authoritarian problems. I wouldn't want to live there because it's just too cold. Uh, yes, uh, America. You're from Michigan. That's basically Canada. I'm left Michigan, um, <laughs> and I haven't gotten far south enough yet. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Unfortunately, sure. Unfortunately, I'm stuck in D.C. Um, Canada, uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the sad truth is that the U.S. implemented a lot of the same um, 
totalitarian COVID policies that uh, Joe Rogan is rightly criticizing that I don't agree with in Canada. I, I think there was probably even more pressure in some circumstances for on policy-wise, maybe not on speech-wise, I don't know. Although they did the, the, the protesting stuff, the debanking, I think the pressure coming from the Canadian government was stronger than maybe the pressure coming from the U.S. government. But for all I know, we'll have the something files two years from now and find out that the, the bank files, where we'll find out that our government uh, was instructing banks to do that kind Maybe of thing. Maybe it'll come out in the course I, of all I, the Jeffrey Epstein investigations. No, yeah. <laughs> nothing would uh, nothing would shock me now. So in, you know, instead of trying to make comparisons or you know who's better, who's worse, I'm just I'm, I'm against all of this sort of COVID totalitarianism, and especially for the the speech components. Canada, interestingly, I've noticed I've noted this before, despite. Um, a perception that I think even so many conservatives have about Canada as like a much more liberal place or a place with a lot more government taking care of people. Canada ranks consistently by 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 um, right by conservative organizations that that look at a country's like tax and regulatory policies. Canada ranks every time, every year, as more free market, free economically free than the U.S. Um, so there's a. There's a way in which, you know, I think the U.S. can almost have like the worst of all worlds in yes. terms of like not having really the social safety net that you want. Yes. And then also having weight. So not doing that, but then also having t tons of government micromanagement of economic issues, but not in a way that actually helps yes. people, but just like helps certain firms and hurts other firms. Yes, it's and, cronyism. It's, yeah. our, our conservatives are worried about screwing Disney and its employees yeah. and wokeism. And, you know, pay for play schemes, just like the Democrats. I'm not saying they're any better on the corruption um, uh, plane, but without giving you anything else. And, you know, also there's a, a significant amount of kind of a cultural conservatism, or kind of a rural um, conservatism in Canada. Most of the country is very rural, and some of the same attitudes about wanting to protect yourself and have guns and things like that do exist. Do you remember um, uh, Rob Ford, uh, the the mayor, mayor of, of Toronto, Toronto, who everyone was like, "That's you know Trumpism on the rise and all of that," and then he, you know, uh, that all ended the way that it did with the. Yeah. Crack and the, there was a, a lot of scandal there, but they the have their own little Prince. American Americana style flair as well. So, I don't know. I, I do find myself when I push back sometimes in these segments about talking about certain things. Let's say it's because we're doing we're talking about uh, COVID or shutting down mm -hmm. Parlor or the trucker. You know, all of those things which I've chosen to cover on my own show in some detail because I think that they're significant and important. But. The reason why sometimes I get nervous about the focus on those things is because if you never or rarely bring up these existential crises like healthcare and the cost of education, you get to a point where you will forget, it will go, it'll fly out of your mind's eye and you'll be, you'll be saying things like, I'd rather live in a country where I die, if I, if I get cancer and I'm poor, I just die because I might get censored on the internet. And maybe that is a maybe that is a choice that you would still like. Maybe you would rather have whatever your perception of freedom online or freedom in your transactions, et cetera, even if that means you give up your ability to afford healthcare. Maybe your Joe Rogan and healthcare just isn't a concern for you because obviously you're very wealthy. But for the average person, I think it is a worry that if we shift the the lens through which we see our politics to things that are so far away from there basic needs to survive, then you can get away. Politicians on both sides of the aisle can get away with saying, well, we're good on wokeness or we're good on 
being nice to LGBTQ people. Those are representing our two mm -hmm. political poles. Meanwhile, everyone is, doesn't realize that they're starving and dying until the emergency is upon them. And we've, and we've entrenched into our political system that there's no one who can break through who actually can fight for those things. Yeah, although some people do. We hear there's reporting on this all the time. People leave Canada to come to the US for medical care that they had to wait, that it was going to take too long to get there. So the system doesn't, doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. It, it, no, it does work for people. But if you're very wealthy, you can make it work even better for you by forum shopping. And I'm glad that they can do that. Anybody can fly anywhere. You can fly to India and harvest in Oregon and do all kinds of things and break all kinds of laws if you have enough money and you really, really want to. But how many people in Canada die every year from a lack of health insurance? I don't know. How many Canadians? Zero. How many Canadians are um, uh, coming out of giving birth with $70,000 bills from the hospital because they had the audacity to have a child. Zero. Those are distinctly American problems. Medical bankruptcy is a distinctly American problem. Before the pandemic, I'm not sure what the numbers are now. All of my numbers, I apologize, are from the camp when I was working on the campaign and I had to memorize these things. But to cancel all medical debt in the United States of America, it was only like $81 billion, which was the amount that, at the time, Congress had just voted to raise our defense budget by. So we have all of these endless conversations these days about how, well, all the money that we're spending in Ukraine could have been spent for X, Y, and Z at home. And in the abstract, that's true. But the reality is that even knowing that we only have $81 billion of medical debt out there, and that a president, mm -hmm. Trump, who was president at the time, Biden, who's been president since then, could snap their fingers and say, I want to, instead of devoting all of this aid overseas, just say debt jubilee for all of the Americans who are suffering because their, their relative, God forbid, just had cancer, like so many of us have experienced in our families. They don't do that. Right. They don't do that because of the political appetite for it, because nobody, nobody is talking about how for a relatively paltry sum, you could cancel all medical debt. Now, he couldn't do it by executive fiat the way he could student debt, because it's not federally held debt. But it is a choice not to want to devote funds to doing those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, I, obviously, I want to make it's a major issue to make health care um, affordable, to make catastrophic care available to people and, and preventative and care and preventative that's rfk care. jr's big thing about yeah we have but we have this screwed up system whereby nobody actually knows what they're paying for anything and there's every incentive for doctors and then the pharmaceutical companies to 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 charge what ends up getting paid for by a third party and then you get a bill sometimes months later and oh and you have to haggle with it's so confusing so complicated and disguises the real cost of it so that it's not i mean it's not really it's not it's not socialism or a market. It's just this in-between yeah. cronyist system that works way worse than any other country because they, they haven't committed either either direction. They're straddling a fence in a way that only benefits um, the the big players in that industry. Um, yeah. And it's a yeah, it's a huge problem. I mean, we, we've had some recent progress on this with um, lowering the the price of insulin. Uh, and Bernie Sanders has been really leading on this, taking those trips from Vermont by bus across to Canada to buy insulin where it was one-tenth of the cost of the United States of America purely because of the greed of drug manufacturers. And so we've had some movement on that. But, you know, in, in 2019, and diabetes the, was and the, the— And the regulation that makes it impossible to create a generic insulin. Absolutely. In 2019, diabetes was literally the uh, seventh leading cause of death in the United States of America, a completely preventable death. In, in most of those cases, that it's caused in many cases by people rationing their insulin because they can't afford a drug that costs 
Right. A fraction in Canada of what it costs for you. So the that's, FDA that's, made it illegal to make a competitor. Right. So I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, come down on Joe Rogan. He, obviously, he's just talking rhetorically in a casual conversation with a rapper. Like, it's not that serious for him. I'm sure he didn't think too hard about this when he said it. But I do think it's worth a reminder that. As much as we are politically focused on certain kinds of issues that matter, that do matter, there is definitely a political agenda that can say, look over here at First Amendment stuff. That is generally important. But look over here at all of the speech stuff and forget the fact that your family is dying. Although the COVID stuff is not just speech stuff. It had to do substantially with how we had to conduct our lives and our freedom of movement. Sure, but it should have been. The COVID was an amazing opportunity. This is what the left was saying during COVID. was an amazing opportunity to be advocating for our broader health rights as a population, not just in the narrow, oh, I hate the COVID vaccine. No. Why are we paying for any of these vaccines? Why is it that the the country understands, Kamala Harris understands, she tweeted this during the campaign, that it would be immoral to make people go medically bankrupt because they were they succumbed to a pandemic virus, but not immoral to let someone go bankrupt because it succumbed to cancer or diabetes or a heart attack or anything else. And that is the question that our American political system has yet to answer. Yeah, but a lot of, sure, but a lot of people also looked at that and said, wow, give the government even a little bit of power. They'll lock me in my homes for years. I can't, I can't even cross that bridge. All right. I object to the idea. I, you can talk, I think we can talk about these things without pretending that someone came and put a padlock on your door. Uh, but not we'll the U.S., but they did, in, they did in China, they did in right, other but places. But we're talking about the U.S. versus yeah, Canada, yeah, right? Yeah. All right. Well, this is interesting. More rising right after this. President Joe Biden is expected to ask Congress for more aid for Ukraine today. According to Bloomberg, the president is seeking $25 billion from Congress, which includes $13 billion for defense and $12 billion in disaster relief funds. The White House Office of Management and Budget declined to comment on the decision when asked by Bloomberg. Podcaster Joe Rogan offered his latest view on the Russia-Ukraine war in a recent conversation with rapper Post Malone. This is the time to be very alarmed because it just seems people are way too casual about wanting this to happen and wanting us to 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 fund this and beat Russia and all this whole craziness of war. It's so complicated, too, with with the U.N. and NATO. And it's so complicated. It's so all of it is like there's so much going on. It's uh, well, they're trying to play magic gathering right in the world with real people right uh, and and this this doesn't just affect ukraine or russia this affects yes everything everything i have to defer to robbie uh with respect to the magic the gathering analogy you saw there. you saw my eyebrows go up. <laughs> I, I did i did well this comes as the world anticipates ukraine's counteroffensive against russia western officials have described sobering assessments regarding ukrainian forces to cnn well four senior united states and western officials aware of the latest intelligence report said this our briefings are sobering we're reminded of the challenges they face. They're still going to see for the next couple of weeks if there is a chance of making some progress. But for them to really make progress that would change the balance of this conflict, I think it's extremely, highly unlikely. Mm-hmm. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville told Fox News' Laura Ingram that Ukraine cannot win the war. We're not getting a point in Washington, D.C. I haven't voted for a dime to send Ukraine. I'm for Ukraine. Russia should have never done this. I was in 
Ukraine three months with uh, President Zelensky before this started. They were already fighting to that point. But at the end of the day, it's a junior high team playing a college team. Uh, they can't win. Uh, we can throw all the money we want to. Uh, but unless we send NATO and our troops over, which we're not going to do if I've got anything to do with it, then then there, there's no chance. So they're trying to get the everybody's eye off the real problem over here. And that's the Biden administration and the Democrats. They're a total disaster. So interesting to note, Tuberville said basically exactly what the same thing as the those intelligence officials characterized the reality for Ukraine. And yet he got accused by Business Insider, and this was re-published uh, by MSN. Maybe we can put it on screen. GOP Senator Tommy Tuberville parroted Russian propaganda on Fox <laughs> News while continuing to hold up U.S. military preparedness. Um, and it's all about, yeah, that it's Russian propaganda to say Ukraine is going to have a real difficult time winning this war. That's exactly what the, what the mainstream establishment intelligence officials conceded. It's not, it's not propaganda. It's not misinformation to admit that um, we have, may, ha, might need to check our objectives here, that the Ukrainian people are dying, their country is being destroyed, and it's terrible. And, and yes, it is right to condemn Russia for this invasion. But in, in the long term, it's just so fa fantastical, fanciful to think that another 25 billion, that'll be another 25 billion, another 50 billion a couple weeks from now, is going to cause Russia to uh, cause Ukraine to unilaterally repel Russia from the country. It's just, it's it's a fantasy. It's not going to happen. Yeah, I, first of all, I do think that it's time for an escalation of rhetoric. I mean, everybody keeps saying, well, we could be using this money at home. I have some skepticism that certain conservatives who are fundamentally against domestic spending and have opposed all of Biden's efforts to do domestic spending, infrastructure spending, and the like, um, would actually support that. But how about we actually get some legislation put forth that says, instead of doing X, we <laughs> actually promote spending on these American priorities. Uh, uh, Hawaii just went up in flames uh, yesterday. You know, there's an, an incredible disasters happening all over the country. East Palestine has been all but forgotten. Flint has been all but forgotten 15 times over. Let's, let's see some people actually putting their money where the proverbial mouth is. But also, I just have to reiterate, it does not require you to be a, a defense official, military expert, to opine, to weigh in, to assess that Ukraine is never going to defeat nuclear-capable power Russia. Yeah. Just an all-out warfare. You kind of really just have to look at a map. You have to look at a map. You have to look at the reality of what um, nuclear brinksmanship means. Right. And, and so unless you are saying that you are going to implicate United States into World War III, with Russia, because this proxy war is going to escalate to that point, then obviously Russia versus Ukraine is never going to resolve in Ukraine's favor. And so now we are talking about, uh, as we did with uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Daniel Davis earlier this week, significant territorial uh, concessions that are ultimately likely going to have to be made to Russia with those uh, eastern occupied territories that were on the table this time last year, earlier than this time last year, very shortly after the conflict started, before many cities had been destroyed and many lives had been lost. And at the time, if you raised the idea of conceding even one square inch of territory mm -hmm. to, to Russia, you were a Putin puppet, you were enabling them, all of this. Now, death and destruction and months and money later, we are at the exact same point. Yeah. And you have to ask yourself who benefited from the protraction of this conflict. And we're going to get to the point, eventually, where Ukraine negotiates with Putin yes. to stave off, you know, Kiev and the entire the entire 
country being subsumed into Russia. Since we know we're going to get to that point, why not do it now before more people are killed on both sides of this conflict? Russia is throwing everything they have into this. They're not going to give up, but they might prefer to negotiate now before some more of their own resources are depleted. What are we doing to facilitate that happening? And does just continuing a blank check policy of writing, of, of writing check after check after check to Ukraine, is that helping to make that a reality or not? It doesn't seem to be helping to make it a reality. And it doesn't sound like our administration is committed to making it a reality. Because unless, unless their thinking behind closed doors is vastly different from what they say in public, and I have no reason to believe that it is, what they say in public is that we, that we will be at this to, as long as it takes, if it takes uh, 100 years. Well, I mean, the argument was that if Ukraine makes certain advances on the battlefield, it will be in a better negotiating position than it would if Russia were sure. dominating and not suffering losses. But that is also contingent on the idea that you're going to be able to make it hurt more for Russia than it does for Ukraine. And ultimately, that calculation, I mean— And we're past that point. They had a counteroffensive where they did take back some territory, and that didn't have a negotiation right. after it. And also— Then they na naively a, got in our head we could win this. And when there's a fundamental imbalance imbal of power, whatever gains—if Ukraine can't, especially without foreign aid, push Russia back meaningfully, mm -hmm. then you're going to be in a position where there's a, like a war of attrition where R Russia knows that at a certain point, Ukraine's going to run out of resources, either because— the, the countries that are funding it and enabling it to fight back are going to lose political support for those efforts back home, whether because its own population is exhausted of the fighting. You know, this is this is a war that's happening in Ukraine, not in Russia. I'm right. not saying that there aren't political consequences for Putin in his own country where people are not wanting to send their uh, family members to fight and die and suffer the economic slings and arrows of sanctions and the like. But the the overwhelming sure. thrust of this is the overwhelming um, harms are going to be felt by Ukrainians. So I mean, that was always a, a ridiculous yeah. uh, uh, ch chicken race. I mean, obviously, you could get to a point where you have a—, a guerrilla forces can still inflict um, punishment on much larger occupying forces. Um, the, this is something the U.S. has experienced. This is something the Russians have experienced in their, their own experience in Afghanistan, in addition to ours. So I'm, I'm not saying that Ukraine will like lose any ability to harm or kill or destroy any of the, the Russian armies. Obviously, that's not going to happen. I mean, we, we've seen much Poor, more poorly equipped resistance fighters still continue to do damage. But is that the point we want to get to, yeah. where what remains of Ukraine is, is you know, people doing, like, suicide bombings and, and, and stores of, of weapons hoarded from the weapons we gave them? I, I mean, who are ultimately going to end up getting these weapons? This is a problem we've, we've run into, the U.S. has run into a number of times, where we think we're funding our friends, and then the geopolitical uh, situation changes, and then these people are not so friendly with us. Yeah. And uh, I, I think there's just so much to be worried about. And it's, it seems like at least there's some intelligence officials who were, uh, understand how dire the case is. And there are some Republican officials who get it as well. And they're, you know, they're Russian propagandists for pointing that out. As always. Very silly. More rising right after this.
UFO whistleblower David Grush came forward with claims this week the United States government is attempting to leak medical records detailing his struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder to The Intercept in order to discredit him. But reporter Ken Klippenstein, who published excerpts from the documents, is disputing that claim, saying he requested them under the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. News Nation, uh, who is also owned by Nexstar, the parent company of The Hill and of Rising, first aired the interview between Grush and journalist Ross Coulthard. They published a retraction of the claim that Grush's medical records were illegally leaked by the government. News Nation said this aspect of Coulthard's statement was, quote, erroneous. However, Coulthard tweeted last night, it's admitted by Ken himself now that he was told where to look by sources inside IC and Department of Defense who are trying to smear David Grush. Their tip could only have come from Grush's highly classified security files. Intercept reporter Ken Clippenstein joins us now to discuss. Thanks for joining us, Ken. Hey, guys. Good to be with you again. So... Maybe you can answer this for us. So you, so you describe the process by which you um, obtained these documents that pertain to David Grush's um, medical mental state in the past. Yeah, I've tried to be really open about this because there are limitations in reporting as to how you're able to find out things. And I think the best way for readers to counteract that is to just have a sense of what it is that, that happened. Um, I basically, you know, I'm a national security reporter. I know a lot of people in the Pentagon. Um, I, when the hearings first started happening, I just kind of asked them, I said, so what do you think of this guy? Is he legit? And a couple of people were familiar with him, had worked with him and they said that he wasn't reliable. Um, you know, I'm not the kind of person to just publish innuendo, so I can't run with that. So I thought, well, how can I substantiate these claims of that he's unreliable? Cause they started hinting at, um, you know, turmoil in his personal life as well. Um, so I went on Nexus, which is a subscription tool investigative reporters have, uh, saw his addresses. Um, requested, if you, you can look at my FOIA, I published it in full in the story that I wrote um, and just asked for like the last 10 years or so of things to see if I could find some kind of documentation to corroborate what I had been, um, what I was being told verbally from uh, folks in the Defense Department. So you were put onto the scent, as it were, initially because of information you had received from, from defense officials. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting because part of the narrative up until this point bolstering uh, Grush's credibility has been the fact that he is very well respected by those same national security officials, that he is in good standing, that he has a security clearance, that he has had a laudable career within that very agency. I mean, how do you reconcile how people within that industry liking him as being framed to bolster him versus some people in his sector finding him to be not credible as being characterized as fundamentally a smear as opposed to something that is potentially offering real insight as to the credibility of his secondhand claims about having uh, awareness of UFOs or alien crafts or aliens themselves. Yeah, this is an important point because it's exactly why we're so interested in this question. Anytime the media just starts parroting the same line again and again, if you, you can go and Google his name, you will see the phrase decorated war hero uh, innumerable times. And I'm not disputing that he is. He clearly you know, has a service record, and I respect that. Um, but my impression was the media is not doing a very good job of vetting this guy, um, not just in the sense of you know finding anything derogatory, but finding anything at all. That's really all I could find in the reporting is that phrase repeated again and again and again. So I wanted to try to see what else there is about him. I put out, you know, I have sources that I know and they introduce me to people. But in addition to that, I put out a call for tips where I stress, I said good or bad information because I really want to give people something that they're not finding in the rest of the press. 
Um, and unfortunately, a lot of it, you know, was negative. But that was sort of my thought pattern is cast as wide of a net as I can to get as much information as I can and then write down what I got. And so that's really how it how it worked. So what do you think are the ramifications of, of what you found? How are we how are we to judge? You know, what, what d- does this in your mind cast some doubt on his testimony that he has a history of having had a medical health episode. Um, well, let's, and some... well, let's talk about what he actually, what you did report, Ken, right? Because you, there's a difference between what you actually reported and what came out in anticipation right. of your reporting, where they right. said, oh, you're going to talk about his PTSD. It didn't seem to me that what no. you wrote about was about PTSD at all. No, when he says PTSD, um, you know, doesn't mean necessarily that you're unreliable i completely agree with him and i actually never said that that's his framing to try to get ahead of the story what i said in the article and what the documents that i found under foia show is that um his wife his current wife described him as an alcoholic and said that he has these episodes now when you're an alcoholic if you're going to go in for a medical procedure and you find out the surgeon is alcoholic is that going to factor into your you know assessment of whether or not this person um you know has the judgment that they need i think it should that's my opinion. But really, I'm pulling this stuff together and it's up to people to decide what they think of it. Do you have a sense of whether or not, uh, has he made any statements post-publishing your article about whether he still struggles with alcoholism, if he was struggling with alcoholism at the time that he um, became aware, uh, was told about the existence of uh, UFOs, et cetera, or any, or any thing that would affect his ability to read the credibility of these reports accurately? Um, to be clear, he has said that he completely recovered from PTSD. Um, but again, in his statement that he put out getting ahead of this, he didn't mention the alcoholism at all. And I thought that was interesting that to me, that was the most um, significant part of it. Because again, I agree with him. Having PTSD is something that's not uncommon, not just with service members, um, but, you know, across the society doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it affects your judgment. On the other hand, alcoholism, I think that's a different case. And so, you know, I think it's interesting that that was the part of it that he didn't that he didn't comment on in his sort of media push before the story came out. In the, I don't know how much you can say about this, but in the rumblings, you, you said that initially turned you on to looking into his background that you heard from people you might know in the Defense Department, et cetera. Um, were they? Are the, are the questions they had about him resolved by this kind of issue? Is this what they you suspect they were pointing to, or specifically, the, you know, them suggesting to you that maybe he would be making up a story about UFOs, UAPs, or is it that he has a history of alcohol abuse? Is what they were trying to get you no, to this, arrive at? This definitely tracked with what they described. And I want to be clear: there's a lot of insinuations that you know, not just that I was leaked these documents incorrectly, but that they somehow went into his medical records. That's not true. These are people he worked with that he knew socially, just like how when you go to work, you have friends and colleagues that you just know things about them. It doesn't mean they went into some super secret database to pull something out. That's not, I mean, I guess that could happen, but that's not how this happened. This was just, I mean, my process tends to be find low and mid-level people because those tend to be the ones with the least political skin in the game. And because of that, they're going to be the most candid and honest and try to ask as many of them um, what they think. Um, and the, you know, just like in science, you want a big sample size so that you can get a more accurate depiction. And so these documents, yes, it essentially um, corroborated pretty much what, what they were saying, but in sort of broader, um, less specific terms. Yeah, I, I definitely am holding on to all of Robbie's D&D dirt uh, for the day that he finally crosses <laughs> Oh, God. Me. But I, I, do, I do just want to read, because specifically, um, People, I, I think, will rightly question the probative value of some of the details of what you published, but I do think it's worth just getting it out 
uh, for the record here in the context of this segment, in case people don't read the whole article and they should, it's over on the on the on the intercept. But you write. Um, Police records obtained by The Intercept under the Virginia Freedom of Information Act revealed that on October 1st, 2018, Grush was committed to a mental health facility based in part on a report that he, quote, made a suicidal statement, end quote, after Grush's wife told him he was an alcoholic and suggested that he get help. Quote, husband asked complainant to kill him, end quote, a police incident report produced by the Loudoun County Sheriff states, he is very angry, guns, uh, he is very angry, guns are locked up. Okay, so... To the extent, I mean, I mean, let me ask you, you, you have admitted, you have acknowledged that you personally are not inclined to believe this alien stuff is real. But yes. even if you were, do you think that someone having suicidal thoughts at one point in their life of being an alcohol or struggling with alcoholism, of having a vi violent home altercation is really probative of having been made aware of or having reason to believe that the government is hiding information about extraterrestrial life. Well, all the things you just listed are things that the um, intelligence community explicitly vets people for because they think that it um, means something about their reliability. And so, you know, if you're asking me that question, what I personally think, I mean, it, you know, I'm not trying to be evasive. I do genuinely think the public has to decide. And that's the whole point of this is He's making, you know, really extraordinary claims and basing them on sources that he has, not stuff he's seen firsthand. So I think it's important for that reason. But to, but to, you know, answer your question directly, what, what, what do I think? Yeah, I agree with the intelligence community. I think it makes sense that they vet for those kind of things as part of a mosaic of a person's life. None, none of this is dispositive. It, it, I don't think it, anyone can't come back from, you know, any mistake, basically. And, and you do note in your story, it's your headline, that he, while this was looked into by intelligence officials, it did not affect, the, in their judgment, his security clearance. That's right. He kept his clearance. What do you make of that? Because you also note in your story that we know that people have had their security clearance stripped for much more minor uh, infractions. For example, there were all those people hired by the Biden administration who admitted to marijuana use in states where marijuana use is legal because Joe Biden represented that he was going to, uh, you know, declassify marijuana and was going to be a much more progressive candidate in that respect. And then th that wasn't the case. And they had their their um, their their access stripped uh, or their standing stripped. What do you make of the choice of the intelligence ag agency to not have done the same for Grush, especially given that his, he and his, his supporters have really touted his security clearances as a hallmark of his credibility. Um, I think that uh, in I'm sorry, could you repeat the last part? I cut out a little bit. What, what, do you make, what do you make of the fact that he still has a security clearance when people who oh, simply yeah. smoked pot don't, especially right. given how the security clearance is being kind of used to shore up his credibility? Right. So there's an enormous amount of discretion in the clearance process. They love to pretend like it's scientific. But in the same way, I mean, um, I assume viewers have seen crit critiques of the kinds of science that law enforcement relies on to make cases and, and the limitations of that science. All of that is true of the intelligence community as well. Um, you know, there's question. I mean, uh, uh, polygraphs, for instance, are not admissible in court um, in, 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 you know, uh, many civil, I think, criminal cases, too. Um, so it's not a science. It's an art. And so um, if you look just as a national security reporter, I've seen DOD, the Pentagon tends to be more lax 
than other agencies like the FBI or the CIA. Mm. Um, and so there's an enormous amount of um, uh, discretion. And the impression I got from talking to people who had worked with him is that um, it, at least at the point that this was happening, he was a well-connected and pretty favored guy. Um, you know, he's a GS-15 and he's only 35. That's, you know, pretty meteoric rise. Um, and I, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that's just like, because he's glad-handing. People did say that, um, you know, they considered him um, in some ways to be an intelligent uh, person and and you can see that how and how senior he got so quickly um but uh uh I, yeah i think that's basically it it's just huge uh it's not you'd be surprised it's not like a checklist it's like very much up to the um you know senior executive service and, and what they decided to do hmm. well ken thank you so much for joining us to shed some clarity on your reporting we really appreciate it i appreciate it guys story. According to a new report in The Intercept, a secret diplomatic cable demonstrates that the Biden administration pressured Pakistan to remove its prime minister for failure to toe the line on the war in Ukraine. But now is the Pakistani government censoring this very report? Now, we've reached out to the White House for comment, and we'll keep you all updated on that front. But until then, here to discuss in more detail is the reporter at The Intercept, Murtaza Hussein. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Now, Murtaza, walk us through uh, what this, um, this, this, uh, this letter, this document actually says. So this document, which is known in Pakistan as a cipher, has been the center of a very serious political crisis of the past year and a half over the removal of Imran Khan. The document itself deals with a conversation between a senior State Department official and that at that time the Pakistani ambassador to the U.S., where the State Department expresses extreme frustration with Pakistan's aggressively neutral, the term they use, stance on the Ukraine war under Khan, and encourages the Pakistani side, also even threatens them that if Khan is not removed, Pakistan would face, quote, isolation. And, and to be clear, Khan at the time of the uh, Russia-Ukraine war breaking out, I believe he was meeting with Putin, something that infuriated um, the U.S. government. Is that correct? That's correct. That's mentioned in the document itself. The Pakistanis were very upset that Khan had been in Moscow on the eve of the invasion, something which Khan said he didn't know about earlier than that. And they had said that if Khan remains in power, well, the State Department officials said two things, that we believe this policy of neutrality is Khan's policy personally and not that of the broader government by implication or the Pakistani military, which is known to be one of the real power players or the main power player in the country. And if Khan was removed, the State Department official added, the dent that had been created in the relationship can go away and, quote, all will be forgiven. So it was a very strong green light and encouragement for the removal of Khan. In the document, the State Department doesn't say, go remove Khan right now and this is an order. But they pretty much give every form of encouragement in the form of threats and positive reinforcement, saying that if he stays, things are going to be very bad between us. If he goes, things will be a lot better. 
And Khan has been, can you give us more details on the removal of Khan? And I, I was led, I, I see that he's being charged now is for, uh, for corruption charges and is facing uh, prison time. So Pakistan has elections scheduled for later this year, and Khan is the most popular politician in Pakistan. Polls show that if you were allowed to contest the elections, he'd win very handily. These charges, corruption charges against him, are widely believed to be an effort to stop him from contesting these elections. He's already been sentenced to three years in jail with a five-year ban from politics. And now, this is very important, with the disclosure of this document, uh, the Pakistani establishment, the military junta now controlling the country, has fought very, very hard to stop this document from coming to light. And they're blaming it on Khan, even though, as we specify very specifically and very clearly in our story, it's a source from inside the military itself, which is disillusioned with the crackdown, disillusioned with the attacks on democracy and the impact of that on the military itself, who gave it to us. They're blaming on Khan specifically because they'd like to add more charges, which could have even more grave implications for him beyond not being able to have freedom for the next few years and being banned from politics. I mean, this is an incredible story with incredible implications. It, it has resonances of what we saw in Brazil with Lula's imprisonment, someone who was popular and likely to win an election, only prevented from doing so because of a kind of allegedly fake uh, or, or exaggerated legal charges. But this one has the added dynamic of having what looks like pretty clear evidence that the American government, the U.S. State Department, was basically picking and choosing the leader of another country. And then not only that, but doing so on the basis of their, quote, aggressively neutral position on the war in Ukraine. You're right, it's just a little bit of background, that the day before the meeting between the U.S. State Department official uh, and, and the Pakistani official, that, that Khan addressed a rally and responded directly to European calls that Pakistan rallied behind Ukraine, quote, are we your slaves? Khan turned to the thundering crowd. What do you think of us, that we are your slaves and that we will do whatever you ask of us? We are friends of Russia and we are also friends of the United States. We are friends of China and Europe. We are not part of any alliance. That is the kind of statement that provoked the U.S. to say we get to pick the leader of your country? You know, Bree, the chronology is really amazing because that statement happened before this meeting. The next day after the meeting, the opposition advanced the very motion which led to his removal from power. So it all happened in a quite a compact time frame. And, you know, this policy of neutrality, which the State Department was criticizing on behalf of Khan, has now been discarded entirely by the Pakistani side. They've emerged as a major supplier of weaponry to the Ukrainian military in their war against Russia brokered by the United States and European allies as well, too. So Pakistan's no longer neutral. They're on, clearly on the Western side of the conflict. And the neutral policy, which Khan and many other countries in the region had tried to chart, Pakistan's now out of that, uh, out of that circle now. They're clearly in the Western camp. So in a way, you know, if you take the most charitable interpretation of the State Department's actions and comments, and I'll add that in this cable, like typical of the many intelligence cables, there's a summary analysis by the person filing, in this case, the Pakistan ambassador. They clearly saw it as interference and described it as such. If you take the most charitable interpretation that they're simply expressing a view, they still managed to sway Pakistani politics in such a way that they've resulted in the effective annulment of democracy, the removal of a popular politician who's now in jail, and the reestablishment of military hegemony in the country, which the U.S. has now 
not just silent on, but actually facilitating by continuing to deal with the Pakistani military uh, in cooperation in this foreign conflict. Are there that many um, elements of, uh, of you know, the government who participated in the effort to oust Khan who were fearful or, desi or desirable of closer um, favorability from the U.S., you know, given the obviously this wasn't just like, I mean, he wasn't assassinated, right? He was taken out by a, a group of military officials. I, the court officials obviously have to be having, in, in, are involved in the process to do these corruption charges. So is there some kind of broad desire among the non-con faction of the government to have a more favorable to the U.S. policy? You know, there's a joke in Pakistan that the country rests on the pillar of three A's, which is army, Allah, and America. So the view of America is considered very, very important in the configuration of Pakistani politics, almost to the extent that the U.S. is part implicitly, if any, governing compact as a major stakeholder. So the, the fact that uh, the military really wants to be seen as useful to the United States, it's a source of cash for them during the Cold War and political support, and it was again during the war on terror. Now those two eras are over, or at least the war on terror is winding down considerably. We're in a new era, they want to make themselves useful again, and they didn't want to fall out with the United States because they viewed it as a source of resources and patronage. And this neutrality was basically a threat to that. And now that that's out the window, uh, this relationship where the political economy of Pakistan is sustained through military rule can continue with outside support. So really, if you look at Pakistani history, there's been a lot of foreign, uh, sorry, a lot of prime ministers who've been died under weird circumstances, have been executed, have been imprisoned, have been barred from politics. The U.S. has always had some role in that. They've had some role in their relationship with the military as a conduit for that. So it's very rare that we ever have documentary proof like we have in this case with this cable. And the fact that we have this proof is why it's caused such a stir in Pakistan, because normally there's some level of deniability to this relationship, the sordid reality of this relationship. But now it's been laid bare for all to see. And as long as the U.S. has this relationship with the Pakistani military, it's going to remain uh, as one of the decisive players in Pakistani politics, which ultimately is to, to the detriment of Pakistani democracy. The U.S., for all its importance, is not part written into the Pakistani constitution. Amartasa, we also have to get into this. You talked about the fallout in Pakistan. The response to this explosive story, I see people online saying, uh, posting screen grabs that seems to be evidence that the story itself, the intercepts reporting you're reporting, is being censored in Pakistan. Well, that's right. There's something very important to keep in mind that the Pakistani military junta has believed to have killed two people to stop the cipher from coming out over the past year. One was a journalist named Arshad Sharif, who was assassinated in Kenya. Another was a gentleman named Imraz, Imran Riaz Khan, a Pakistani journalist. He's not known to be dead yet, but he disappeared a few months ago and no one's heard from him. His family's not heard from him, so his fate is very, very unclear. They've gone to extraordinary lengths to stop this from coming out. They've arrested thousands of people. Uh, Khan himself has been threatened over this document. They don't want it to come out, and they don't want Pakistanis to see it. Now, suddenly, because of a leak inside their own institution has come out, and the last thing they can really do is just to start throttle the internet, throttle the Intercept's website. I think that effort is creating a bit of a Streisand effect. You can't mm -hmm. the cat's out of the bag at this point. But, but yet they're doing everything they can to prevent its disclosure, which I think is also a testament to its importance and veracity as well, too. If this was a nothing burger, if this was not as serious as some of the detractors and critics have claimed who are aligned with the military, they wouldn't need to do this much to stop it. But now that it's out, 
they are in a lot of trouble and the kind of the last ditch effort is to block the internet, which we're seeing yeah, right now. Yeah, and, and, and Ryan Graham, obviously our former colleague, your co-writer on the story at The Intercept, he tweeted this morning that Pakistani police are pursuing Imran Khan's attorney on the highway and he's vowing not to surrender without a warrant. Dystopian scenes unfolding. Do you know anything more about what's going on there? Unfortunately, you know, Pakistan has always had, despite attacks on the press and, uh, you know, constraints from the military, it's had a pretty robust civil society, a robust press, a robust uh, judiciary, uh, legal scene. That's all in the past few months being suppressed to a degree not seen maybe in generations, maybe ever. It's a burgeoning totalitarianism. So you see lawyers, politicians who don't tow the government's line being arrested. Today, as you mentioned, Imran Khan's lawyer was almost arrested. And I do believe that through their efforts to falsely pin the story and the disclosure of the cipher on Imran Khan himself, you may see very, very grave steps taken against him and people close to him. You know, in Pakistan, uh, the penalty under this proposed Official Secrets Act the military is pushing forward it, for treason is very grave. It could be a loss of one's life. So I think that, you know, you may see only the beginning right now of a far worse crackdown to come, which would mean the final end of democracy in Pakistan for the foreseeable future, which unfortunately is being met with silence by the U.S. State Department and White House, despite what seems to be their own involvement in setting the circle of events in place. And very much despite constant rhetoric about the need to foster democracy, even uh, by using American dollars for weapons to do so everywhere around the world. Murtaza, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.